I want to ask you to turn in your copy of the Bible to Psalm chapter 19. And this is usually a time where I take a little break to make a commercial. If you don't have a Bible to call your own, we have some for you. We keep some on hand for this very reason, and we would love to give you a Bible to call your own. It will be in the same uh, translation of the scriptures that I read from, so it will be easy to follow along in. We're in Psalm 19. I need to give you a little bit of a, little bit of a heads up. Because for the next five weeks, or at least including today, five weeks including today, we will be going through a little mini-series as we're in between books of the Bible. We're going to be looking at uh, what, what we call gospel habits. Gospel habits. We're going to be identifying five things that God has given us in His Word, five things that He has communicated that are intended to bring us closer to Christ. And so, uh, today we're looking at scripture, scripture intake, uh, and, and hopefully this will be an encouragement to you and, and maybe even a challenge to you to meet with God in His Word. Uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 19. We're also going to be in 2 Timothy. Uh, these five weeks are going to feel a little different. They're a little different feeling for me because I'm accustomed to just knowing what the next passage is that we're going to be looking at and being able to read my commentary and spend some time in the text looking at what the Lord has for us. But now we are doing something a little unusual for us. We're looking at a topic. Uh, and so uh, although the, the ordinary diet of our church is to go through a, a, a book of the Bible, a verse or a section at a time. We are going to take a few of these opportunities to look at important topics. Uh, coming up next will be 1 Corinthians, which will uh, be quite the long haul, but it's going to be good. So I hope you'll be here uh, with us. That'll get us committed through uh, at least another year uh, of going through a book of the Bible. Uh, every year... Ligonier Ministry puts on a, a survey of Americans generally and evangelicals in particular uh, to see what is the state of theology. That's what the survey is called, the state of theology. They want to be able to say, what is it that Americans in general and evangelicals in particular are believing uh, in 2022? Uh, they found some interesting things. I'm going to tell you one of their statements that they asked people to either agree with or disagree with. And you could either strongly agree, somewhat agree. You could be not sure. You could somewhat disagree or strongly disagree. Uh, the, the, the phrase or the statement was this. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. The State of Theology survey found that 55% of evangelicals agreed with that statement. Everybody sins a little, but we are, most people are good by nature. Another statement that they asked people to either agree or disagree with was this. The Holy Spirit can tell me to do something that is forbidden in the Bible. 18%, so almost one in five evangelicals agreed that the Holy Spirit, it, was, it would be possible for the Holy Spirit to tell me to do something that the Bible says is sin. Another 9% of evangelicals were unsure. 
So 25, or 24%, so one in four evangelicals didn't really know whether or not it would be possible for the Holy Spirit to tell me to do something that is forbidden in the Bible. What can account for this? Why does it seem that so many people who would say that they are an evangelical disagree with clear biblical teaching? Uh, clearly there's some subpar teaching going on in our churches. We, we understand that. But there's also this very important question of how often we are reading our Bibles. It would make sense that if we have a very distant relationship with our Bible, then our beliefs would also have a very distant relationship with the Bible. That would only be natural. In 2019, LifeWay Research found that among churchgoers, only 32% read their Bible every day. Among churchgoers. It's not just Americans broadly or even evangelicals, but people who actually go to church. One-third of them, only one-third of them, read their Bible every day. 40% of churchgoers interact with the Bible anywhere from zero to one time per week. Almost half of churchgoers only interact with the Bible zero to one time per week. And it's uh, reasonable to assume that perhaps that one time that they interact with the Bible is when their pastor is standing in front of them saying, would you turn your Bible to fill in the blank? And keep in mind, these are self-reporting surveys. So it's reasonable to assume that most people probably think they read their Bible more than they do. I think that I go to the gym more than I do, right? I have a membership. People say, hey, Greg, do you go to, do you go to the gym? So, oh, I have a membership. That's a great way to not answer the question, right? You know? I found out when I, when I recently paid my gym dues that I had only been one time this month, and hopefully today we'll go for twice, and it's the 23rd. So not doing so well. I think that I go to the gym a lot more than I do I think that we think that we interact with our Bibles a lot more than we probably do. Is that a safe thing to say? Uh, last week, I've got a slide for this. Uh, Jeopardy asked the following question. I'm, a, I'm an avid Jeopardy watcher, okay? And so last week, whenever these come up, I'm always intrigued. It said this, Matthew 6, 9 says, Our Father, which art in heaven, blank, or this, be your name. You know how many of the three contestants even tried to give an answer? Zero. Zero. Nobody even tried. The question timed out. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, we can gasp at this and be like, oh, that old culture out there is kind of going to hell in a handbasket. But the reality is what we need to be more concerned with than an unbelieving culture, we need to be more concerned with an unbelieving church. We need to be more concerned with a church that is biblically illiterate than we are with a culture that is biblically illiterate. While we may gasp at how little the culture knows of the Bible, we have to face these facts. Friends, in many of our Christian homes, the books of the Bible are not known to our kids. The language of the Bible is absent from our conversations, and the logic of the Bible is strangely missing from our reasoning and from our decision making. We cannot fool ourselves into thinking that our churches will be healthy or that our gospel will be believed 
if we ourselves have a distant relationship with the Bible. For our country to see revival, the church must first see reformation. The church has to deal with its own issues before we can expect anything out there to change. So here's what I want to do. Uh, the last thing I want to do is just body slam you or shame you into reading your Bible more. I want to try to be constructive. I want to try to give three reasons why you should love the Bible and immerse yourself in the Bible and absolutely give yourself to the reading and the, memoriz and the memorization and uh, even meditation on Scripture. I want to try to give you three reasons and then three ways to do it. So this is going to feel a little more like a teaching than a preaching, but hopefully you will see the truths that I'm about to share arising from the Scriptures. If you have a bulletin on the back, there, there's a, an opportunity for you to write in some notes maybe. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I write things down, it helps me remember them better. Reason number one, why we must know the Bible, why we must immerse ourselves in the Bible is this. Our lives and our homes must know the gospel. Our lives and our homes must know the gospel. I want to read to you from Psalm 19, the first seven verses or so. I want to see if you can pick up on what the psalmist is doing here. Okay, we'll break it down as we go through. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. You see what David is saying here, what the psalmist is saying? He's saying that, that when you go to Yellowstone National Park or when you go to the Grand Canyon or when you are able to see the northern lights or, or any kind of beautiful sunset fading over the amber waves of grain on your farm, whenever you are able to see God's handiwork, that communicates to us that there has got to be a creator. There's got to be a God, right? I mean, how could we even have a category for beauty, right? If there, is no, if there is no standard, right? How could we even have a category of good and evil or of beauty, of aesthetics, if there is no beauty maker? So what the psalmist is saying here is that, yes, it's possible to know that there is a God when we look out. But is that enough? Is it, is it enough to know that there is a God? Who exist. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's rising from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And then look at this hard pivot in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Do you see the difference there? The difference between verses 1 through 6 and verse 7? Verses 1 through 6 are telling us what the theologians call general revelation. It's possible to look out and, and believe that there is a God, to, to study the sciences and to, and to even look at the human eye, which confounds even the most strident evolutionary biologists. None of them can account for how the eye could have evolved. 
It's a, it's a missing piece in the puzzle. They don't see how it could have come about. When we see the beauty of God's creation, we can come to the conclusion that there's got to be a creator. There's got to be a God. But that does not save us. Believing that a God exists doesn't save. We have to have more. And verse 7 unlocks that lock for us. Verse 7 is the key that tells us what it is that we need. When we pivot to verse 7, there is a drastic change in tone. It goes from, uh, the Bible goes from uh, declaring the beauty of God's creation and how clearly there's a God behind this to saying in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect and it even has the power to revive the soul. It's the Bible, friends. It's the Bible through which we are able to know about this God. Creation can tell us that there is a God, but the Bible can tell us who He is and how we can come to know Him. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Listen to these verbs. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. There's this idea of eyes being open and hearts beginning to beat and souls beginning to live. And friends, it can only come about by an interaction, by a collision with the Word of God. That's why we need the Bible. That's why our language needs to be infused with the language of Scripture so that our kids at the dinner table grow up hearing us use words like conversion and words like sin and words like reconciliation because without them, our gospel witness in our own homes will fall silent. We need the Word of God because our own lives and our own homes need to know the gospel. It is the only thing that can revive the soul. The primary reason that we need the Bible is not because it gives us the principles to make us a better person, right? Christianity, someone has described Christianity as a and they've done this antagonistically. They've been like, you Christians, you, you have your Christianity because you're weak people who need a crutch. Christianity is a crutch to help weak people limp through life. And whenever someone says that, I usually, I usually actually run toward the accusation and I say, it's, it's actually worse than that. Christianity is not a crutch for weak people. It's a gurney for dead people. Right? We are not good people who need to be better. We are dead people who need to be made alive. And that is what the Bible does. Psalm 19.7 says that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And without the scriptures, our gospel witness in our own heart, and in our homes, and in our churches, and eventually in our community will fall silent. We will fail to share the gospel because we will feel like we don't know the Bible well enough to do so. 
And so as a result, we never do. And as a result, they never hear. And as a result, they never turn. All because we have become estranged from this book. That's reason number one. We need the gospel. Reason number two, why we need the Bible and the gospel that is contained in it. Reason number two is we need real wisdom. I mean, friends, life is hard. I don't know if you've noticed this. Life is incredibly difficult. I mean, to try to navigate some of the things that we have to navigate just in the course of being at work or with raising kids or with interacting with your husband or wife, life is incredibly difficult. Verses 7 through 11 talk about this, and they talk about the, the power of the Word of God to give us what we need to live our lives well. It says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That's our basic need, to be regenerated, to be saved, to pass from death to life, to have blind eyes opened. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The Bible has the ability to to give wisdom to people who realize that they need it. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. In other words, what David is saying here in Psalm 19 is that when we come to immerse ourselves in the Bible and we come to view life the way that the Bible views life, our lives will come to make a kind of sense because we, for the first time, are living our life in a way that dovetails, that, that meshes with the way that God has set the world up to work. There's a kind of wisdom that comes in knowing God's Word. The knowledge that we can get from observation or education or enculturation, these things are not enough to be able to build our lives on. There are bedrock principles that are not just communicated in the Bible, but are woven into creation. And if we do not attach our lives to them, our lives will not go well. He says, it kind of builds on this at the very end of the chapter. If you'll just look over at, chap at verses 13 and 14. He says this, after talking about the power of God's word, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. You know what a presumptuous sin is? It's like when somebody says, oh, you know, God will forgive me, I'll do it anyway. You know? Presuming on God's grace. He says, keep me back from that. And don't let them have dominion over me. Like, don't let them be my king. Don't let them rule me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. See, David understands that all of life is just one long 70 or 80 or 90 or 100 year act of worship. He's like, how is, how is it that I can do this in a way that pleases God? It's by living on the wisdom of Scripture. 
And friends, if I could just try to apply this for a minute to the men in the room and then to the ladies in the room. Many men are fighting a war on multiple fronts. And I'm afraid that the reason that we are failing in these battles is because we have laid down our weapon. Many men are fighting the battle for vis visual and mental purity. Asking, how should I lead my home? How can I manage this difficulty at work? How can I be the dad that I need to be? And the reason these battles are so difficult is because we are living on a starvation diet of Scripture. We've, we've laid down our weapons. We've fallen out of love with our Bible, and as a result, we've fallen in love with something else. Many women are fighting their own war on multiple fronts. How can I follow my husband when he seems to be asleep at the wheel? How can I manage the balance between work responsibilities and home responsibilities? How can I win the battle against these emotional or idealistic messages about relationships that the media is sending me that makes my own relationship feel like it must be defective, there must be something wrong with it. Ladies, fighting these battles on a starvation diet of Scripture is a recipe for disaster. We must be so familiar with the Bible that its logic comes to drive the train when we have a decision to make, when we have a problem to solve, when we have a hurt that we need to navigate. That's number two. We need real wisdom. Reason number three is this. In Scripture, we get God. This is a bedrock, foundational reason why we need to fall in love with the Bible. Because in the Bible, in the Scriptures, we get God. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. These words should be on the screen as well. I want to point something out to you that I made much of on a, on a Wednesday evening or Sunday evening not long ago. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. The Bible says this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Did you see that? Did you notice that, what it, what it just said? Continue in what you have learned. Knowing from whom you learned it. The gospel and the revelation that is given to us from the Bible is both a what and a who. In the Bible, there are truths that are communicated to us. That's the what. 
Without the Bible, we will not know the what. The what is true. How do I know God? What is my problem? What is the solution? Without the scriptures, we will not know the what. But in between these words, in between the, the what, there is a who that is told to us. Jesus Christ. The Bible goes on to say this. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. It says the writings, the Bible is key to knowing the what and to knowing the who. How you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then comes one of the most rock star passages on the scriptures in all of the New Testament. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good Work. Friends, there is a what in the Bible. Jude says that there is a faith, the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. Ephesians 4 says that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It is possible to get the gospel wrong. It is possible to get the, the what wrong. And if we get the what wrong, we will miss the who, Jesus Christ. See, the gospel is not simply a bag of facts that we intellectually agree to. The Bible is also a person. The gospel is also a person. Jesus Christ. The only way, friends, catch me here. Don't, don't miss this. The only way to know the who is to have an interaction with the what. This is one of the biggest dangers that I want to warn you against today so many people in evangelicalism and I believe this explains the statistics that I gave you up front so many people are so unsatisfied bored with the Bible that they have to go looking for the who outside of the what they have to go looking for the who somewhere else. They're trying to fall in love with the who without ever falling in love with the what, with the truth. Emotionalism in, in worship, searching for the chills. I was recently reading an article that was talking about how nearly all modern worship music that you would hear on Christian radio is produced by about six or eight megachurches. And none of them, I mean, I would, none of them would I recommend to you. None of these churches, if you're on vacation in that city, I would tell you, stay away. Like, I would rather drive bamboo shoots up my fingernails than tell you to go to these churches. And they're producing most of our contemporary worship music. Right? I mean, it's, it's incredible. Searching for the chills, searching for the who, apart from the what. There's also superstition in approaching God. Many are pursuing what is called the, the word of faith movement. And then nobody, if you walk into one of these churches, they'll never say we're a word of faith church. It doesn't work like that. It's a softer form of the prosperity gospel. We know, 
We know that when someone says, hey, trust God and you'll get a Lamborghini, we know that's the prosperity gospel. And many people are staying away from that. But there's this softer version of it that basically says you can speak things into existence. If you just name it, you can claim it. If you believe something, your positive thoughts can create a reality between you and God. And this comes from the new thought tradition that was popularized a number of uh, decades ago. But friends, I would, just, I would just tell you, stay very far away. Stay very far away. The beauty of this, I mean, I'm always looking for good, always looking for positive things. The beauty is that many people are searching for God. They want intimacy with God and praise God for that. But the, the tragedy is that people are searching for the who apart from the what. We've become bored with God's method of knowing Him in the Bible, and we're looking for superstition and other things outside of it to try to get near God instead of just reading what this says and believing it and doing it. I want to read you a story, uh, and it, it begins this way. Evangelist Robert Sumner, in his book, The Wonder of the Word of God, tells of a man in Kansas City, and this man was not bored with the Bible, he was severely injured in an explosion. His face was badly disfigured. He lost his eyesight completely, as well as both hands. And he had just become a Christian when the accident had happened. Just before the accident, he had become a Christian. And one of his greatest disappointments was not that he couldn't play golf or drive a car anymore. One of his greatest disappointments was that he could no longer read the Bible. He couldn't see it with his eyes, much less hold it with the hands that were now missing. Then he heard about a lady in England who had learned to read Braille with her lips. Hoping to do the same, he sent for some books of the Bible in Braille. But he discovered that the nerve endings on his lips had been too badly damaged to distinguish the characters. One day, as he brought one of the Braille pages up to his lips and just one more vain attempt to see if there were any feeling left in his lips, his tongue happened to touch a few of the raised characters and he could feel them. Like a flash, he thought, I can read the Bible with my tongue. At the time Robert Sumner wrote this book, the man had read through the entire Bible four times. The last thing I want you to hear me saying is, hey, you lazy Christians, read your Bible more. That doesn't do anybody any good, does it? What I want you to see instead is that in the Bible and through the Bible you get the greater treasure God himself and that makes it worth pursuing that makes it worth disciplining yourself for in the Bible we get God could it be that the reason we have such a Milquetoast love of God is because we have such a different relationship, a di distant relationship with the Bible. I pray that we would recover our first love. I've given you three reasons 
why you should pursue the scriptures. Now I'm going to pivot to try to be more practical and, and try to give you three ways, three ways to read the Bible. There's a graphic, Lee, I wonder if you could throw that up there. There's this graphic that just kind of shows how it is that we are made more like Jesus. And there's a, kind of a little pitfall here we need to watch out for. Uh, many of us are kind of stuck in this top, top left area of our spiritual disciplines. It's so easy to get stuck here and just language, languishing in a rut. We, we are in the area of duty. We, we feel like I need to read my Bible because I have to. And friends, honestly, that's where it starts. I mean, when I was, when I was training myself to run distance, I would often begin by being like, I need to go run five miles because I have to, right? It was not always I need to or I want to. But, but friends, let me encourage you. If you will pursue Jesus in the scriptures, he will, by his Holy Spirit, very quickly get you out of that first uh, mire and that first swamp of duty. I have to. And then we get over here into discipline. We wake up every day and it's just it's normal. It's normal to read the Bible. We, we're, we're eating our breakfast and just like I need to eat something, I need to put food in my belly, I need to put gas in my vehicle, I need to have God's Word. Now it's no longer a, a drudgery, but now it's a, a discipline. And friends, I've found numerous times in my life that when we press through duty... And when we press through discipline, God will often, oftentimes give us delight. Where we pursue God because now we want to. Once we press through duty and once we press through discipline. And some days, I mean, three months into delight, you may have a day where it feels like duty again. Or it feels like, oh, i got to discipline myself. Discipline is what catches us when we fall out of delight. And then we discipline ourselves and we, we keep pressing on and, and God pushes us back into that area of delight. Let me give you what I hope would be some encouraging uh, words here. My first way out of three ways is this, just read. I mean, don't wait around for just the right Bible reading plan or just the right partner to do it with. J just do it. It's like Nike. Just, just do it, right? If you read the Bible 25 minutes a day, you would read the whole thing in six months. That's all it takes to read the Bible in six months. As thick as it is, as thin as the pages are, as many words as there are on a page, the average reader can read the Bible in six months, reading less than 30 minutes a day. That's 12 minutes to read it in a year. Uh, the average social media user, any, any social media users in here? No, I'm sure there are none of you who do that. None of you have Facebook. The average social media user spends two and a half hours, two hours and 31 minutes a day on their social media apps. And just little bits and pieces add up, right? Researchers found that fully half of the time that we spend on our phones is for social media. But if this is true, if, if you're one of those people, if you're the average social media user, and you could swap that two hours and 31 minutes out for Bible reading time, you would read the Bible in 29 days, the whole thing, in 29 days. The funny thing about reading the Bible is this, it breeds more reading of the Bible. Researchers have found uh, that, that those who read the Bible consistently, they report that when they miss their Bible reading time, they can tell. 
Like it's a noticeable difference. There's a, a, a study that was done by two doctors, one uh, Ed D and one PhD, and they studied 40,000 people who read the Bible or didn't. Here's what they found. They found that people who only engage the Bible one time per week when the pastor says, please open your Bible to whatever, these people basically encounter zero change in, in their daily life in these categories that they surveyed. Now, this is not a commercial for you to no longer come to church because ah, it just doesn't do me any good listening to Brother Greg anyway. But here's what I'm trying to say. People who engage the Bible only one time per week, it's just not quite enough for life change to be produced. They found that the same thing with people who only interact with the Bible twice per week. There's basically no jump on the line graph. People who interact with their Bible three times per week there's a little bit of a bump, a little bit of signs of life, like on the heartbeat monitor or whatever. Something about four times a week. In other words, more days than not. Listen to what happened. Feelings of loneliness dropped 30%. Anger issues dropped 32%. Bitterness in relationships dropped 40%. Alcoholism dropped 57%. Sex outside of marriage dropped 68%. Feeling spiritually stagnant dropped 60%. Viewing pornography dropped 61%. And listen to the good news. Sharing your faith jumped 200%. Discipling someone else, meeting with someone else to make a disciple jumped 230%. For those who simply interacted with their Bible on more days than not. My encouragement to you, churches, is, is this. Don't wait around for just the right reading plan or just the right devotional book or just the right feeling. Don't wait around until you think that you're ready. Don't wait around until you feel like, I, I know I'm going to stick with it this time. Don't wait around until New Year's. You'll be done by February the 4th, right? Just do it. God honors all reading of his word, and I believe, I believe that he will bring fruit. The power is not in the plan or the method or in the strategy. The power is in God's word alone. That's way number one. Just do it. Just whatever you can. In those quiet moments, ask yourself, you know, when, when, when you turn at the, at the end of that row and you've been, you know, combining whatever is in season and you're just kind of setting, you know, the, the auto steer for another half mile or however long it is to the other end of the field. I know you've got to watch out for fawns and for, you know, debris and stuff like that, but could you redeem that time? Here's method number two. Memorize. Memorize God's Word. I believe that Psalm 119.11 tells us about the benefits of hiding God's Word in our hearts. That's the Bible's language for memorize. Hiding God's Word in our heart. Here's the benefit to this. You ever heard these commercials on the radio or podcast advertisements for superfoods? You know, it's, it's all these nutrients packed into something very small, and you get a ton of bang for your buck. These superfoods. Well, memorizing Scripture is like the superfood of spiritual disciplines because you're really doing two in one. You're reading the Bible. You're really doing three in one. You're re reading the Bible. You're worshiping God with your mind, 
Worship, I worship, the God with, worship my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're reading the Bible, you're worshiping God with your mind, and you're meditating on Scripture. It's impossible to memorize something without meditating on it. It's very difficult to do. It's very difficult just to put your mind in neutral while you're memorizing something. Andy Davis, pastor of First Baptist Church, Durham, North Carolina, he pioneered a simple plan, and I've got it footnoted. If you pick up a, a copy of the sermon on the way in, you can grab it on the way out. Uh, a link to his website and, and his free ebook that you can download about how to memorize scripture. He, it's very simple, and it's not just for the super smart or the super gifted. Basically, he says, our brains are made to handle this. Like generations ago, people memorized all kinds of stuff, and we've just basically stopped using that area of our brain because we don't have to. We have Google on our phone now. And Andy Davis has found that if you, just, if you just work on one verse a day, and that's all you do, don't get too ambitious, just one verse a day, over time you can memorize large chunks of Scripture, and your mind will retain it. Your mind will. He started doing this a few years ago, probably 15 years ago, 20 years ago, but as of 2017, he has memorized 43 books of the Bible. 43 books of the Bible. Now, maybe he's more gifted than us. Maybe we couldn't all get to 43, right? Maybe we couldn't. But one day when we get to heaven and we have to tell God why we hid so little of his word in our hearts and our answer is going to be because I was scrolling Instagram, I don't know that that's going to be a very comfortable little encounter. You know what I'm saying? When our mind has the ability to do it. Our mind has the ability to take in so much of the Bible. Dawson Troutman, he founded this Christian organization called The Navigators. When he was converted to faith in 1926, he began memorizing uh, one Bible verse every day. He was driving a truck for a lumber yard in Los Angeles at the time. When he was at a stoplight, he just looked down at his notes. And when he was waiting to be loaded in the yard, he would look down at his notes and just redeem these little few bits of his day. While driving around town, he would work on his verse for that day. Because you don't have to look down all the time. You could get it in your mind and repeat it over and over again. During the first three years of his Christian life, he memorized his first thousand verses. In three years, that's, I mean, that's 365 a year, right? That's about right. Simply because our minds are made to do it. And God has given us the ability and he tells us to worship him with our mind. And that leads us to our last, our very last point. This is my encouragement to you. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. What is wasting our life? Many people say life's too short, take the vacation, Right? Life's too short, buy the truck. Right. Friends, wasting our life looks like getting the job but not getting the gospel. Taking the vacation but not taking the chance to share Jesus. Memorizing the sports stats and the country songs, and I have way too many country songs in my mind than I care to admit, Wasting our life looks like memorizing all of this useless stuff but never hiding God's word in our heart. It looks like building a house, a house that everybody loves and makes compliments on, but never building a gospel-centered home. Friends, let me encourage you. 
Redeem the time. What small bits of your day do you have when you could pull out a note card and hide God's word in your heart and allow God to allow you to fall in love with his word and so be changed? Maybe it does look like you at the end of the row when you're combining or spraying or, or whatever it is that you're doing at that particular time of the year. Maybe you have that quiet time when you're rocking the baby to sleep and instead of scrolling a bunch of useless stuff that just puts your mind in dopamine, you know, stupor, you could open up that Bible app. Hide God's word in your heart. I had a conversation with a young man just recently, and he was just so overjoyed with the kind of job that God had given him. And it wasn't because he just really loved what he did. He said, you know what's crazy about my job is I'm by myself. He, worked, he works on a farm. So I'm by myself in a piece of equipment all day. And in the busy parts of the day, like 12 to 16 hours. Busy parts of the year, like 12 to 16 hours. He says, you know what I'm able to do that I, wasn't, I wouldn't have been able to do 10 years ago? So I can find all kinds of great resources. So I'm listening to seminary lectures in my headphones. I'm listening to, to sermons from solid pastors on my headphones God has given me a job where I'm able to, like, not waste my life. I mean, some, some of you guys that are farmers, y'all could have, like, in two years, the equivalent of, like, a bachelor's degree in theology from the stuff that's available out there. Friends, let's not waste our lives. And I'll leave you with this question. What unique parts of your day have space for you to begin practicing to love God's Word? Friends, I hope I've made this abundantly clear. The goal is not that we would just become little legalists who follow the rules and memorize all the scriptures, but we pursue God's word because in God's word we get God. He's the treasure, and we want to draw near to him and so be changed so that our homes can be changed and so that our communities can be changed. Gospel habit number one, take in the Bible, friends, and watch what God will do in your life. Let's pray.